We are continuing this morning in our sermon series through the book of Matthew. And just by way of very quick review, last week we had the opportunity to finish uh, what Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, that section of Scripture known as the Beatitudes. We saw all of these tremendous blessings that God promises to those who faithfully aspire to follow Him. And we saw, um, perhaps surprisingly, that the return for all this goodness, all of this following of the Lord, is the last beatitude where Jesus says, Blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Friends, it's by no mistake that we come to the passage that we do, because verse 13 follows after verse 12. That's just the way that it works. But in God's providence, we are uh, standing at a historic day as we think about Palm Sunday. The, the day when Jesus rode triumphantly into Jerusalem and uh, men laid their coats and their tunics and they laid palm branches down, kind of as their kids ran around waving their palm branches, singing the same way we started off this morning, singing Hosanna. The point this morning is not to go and do likewise. What do we know uh, about those people who worshipped Christ on that Sunday when he came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey? They were the same ones who were crying for him to be crucified. And friends, if there's anything that we learn from that, it's that sometimes worship, all times, worship that is not followed up by lifestyle is not truly what the Bible calls is worship. And so we remember this morning that when we talk about, oh, the blessings, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the persecuted, while the Christian life is one of deep blessing, friends, it's also one of tremendous responsibility. Yes, we are promised the blessing and the glory of heaven, but we are given the responsibility of being his witnesses. One does not come without the other. When we talk about the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes are not just to be something that we do at home. They're not just to be something that we do at church, but they're to be lived everywhere. The blessings of the Beatitude lead us to the responsibility of witness. And we see that very clearly in verses 13 through 16. But as we were reminded last week, there is a severe conflict between the kingdom of God in the kingdom of this world. On Palm Sunday, we need to be reminded that it's not our shouts of Hosanna that glorify God as much as how we live as His witnesses. In four quick verses this morning, Jesus talks about the influence that these blessed ones can have on the world. How do we do this? When we think about the Beatitudes and being poor in spirit, being mourners over our sin, gentle, hungering and thirsting over righteousness. How do we do this? Do we move to Montana, buy 40 acres and put a compound together and kind of live separate from the world where we're not tempted to live in ungodly, worldly ways? Are we supposed to be all monks and nuns, dressed in our habits, uh, chanting uh, scripture and not engaging with the world? Hardly. God's commission to us is to permeate the world as his agents of redemption. We are to be completely and totally different from the world, yet we are to be closely related to those that live within it. 
And so this morning we'll see uh, some important things for us this morning as we look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Listen to God's word. Jesus says this, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Pray with me, please. God, it is um, so easy for us to recite the blessings of following you. Sins forgiven and heaven promised. But God, it is easy also sometimes to forget our responsibilities. And so as we seek to worship you in spirit and in truth, help us to grasp uh, with both hands both the privileges and the responsibilities of following you. God, help us, as this passage says, to be salt and to be light for your glory. Amen. Well, there's a first thing that we notice as our passage uh, unfolds. In both 13 and verse 14, we see that Jesus' words are emphatic. The Greek language has the opportunity to move several things around for emphasis. In the you, Y-O-U, in both verse 13 and verse 14, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. The you is put into first position. Jesus is emphasizing something. He's saying, you are the salt, you are the light. This is not an imperative. It's not a command. It's an indicative. Jesus is making a statement. He's not saying, hey, Northside Baptist Church, y'all need to be salt and y'all need to be light. It's not a command. It's a statement. He's saying, if you are indeed my followers, if you are the blessed ones that we just spoke about, In verses 2 through 12, if you are the ones who are seeking after me and living for me, you are indeed the only salt and light. You are my plan for helping everyone to understand my agenda. He's simply telling us not to do something different, but just to be what he has died to make us to be. And friends, that's a liberating thing here to remember, is that God is not giving us... um, another set of Ten Commandments. He's not giving us a law. He's just saying, by my grace, through your faith, I have made you my sons and daughters. Live like it. Not as a command. Just let the work that I have begun in you flow out of you. I'm not asking you to do anything. I'm just asking you to be who you already are by faith in Christ. Friends, does that sound different than do this and live? It's wonderfully liberating. 
In one sense, we don't have to do anything because God in Christ has already done everything for us that needs to be done. Our job is to just not get in the way. The life of Christ that dwells in us wants to get outside. It wants to see the light of day. It wants to play. And our job is to just be who God has made us to be. So he starts with emphasis. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. But we also see that Jesus' words are specific. He uses metaphors here. He paints a word picture here. And he says uh, a couple things that are very interesting. He says that those who live the blessed life of the Beatitudes, those who are seeking after God, and even if the world hates them, are determined to live for God. Those blessed ones have both a preserving and a revealing function in the culture. Now, we know that because of the two word pictures, the two metaphors that God uses to describe the influence of the Christian. He is described as salt, and he is described as light. Now, contrary to popular belief, the little chart that you see in the middle of your sermon notes is not a crossword puzzle, Chris Hefner. It is a chance for us to compare and contrast these things that God is saying that we are. And so when we see salt, uh, what does salt do? It preserves. Salt preserves. It combats corruption and it delays decay. Now, many of us probably don't appreciate the way that salt works because we don't use it this way very often anymore. When we hear the word salt, what's the very first thing that you think of? You think of seasoning. You know, and some of you put too much salt on your food. I've sat with you on Wednesday night. Salt on everything. Just a little more flavor. Just a little more flavor. And I think that's certainly one of the things that Jesus is implying, is that as Christians, we should make life more zesty. We shouldn't look like rotten, miserable people who don't get to do anything fun because Jesus, we want to obey Jesus and that can't be fun at all. We have to be starchy. No, we should be zesty. We should have joy in living the way that God wants us to. But primarily, um, that is not the way that salt was used in in New Testament times. Salt was used as a preservative. In in days uh, before air conditioning and refrigeration existed, you preserved meat by curing it with salt. I know we happen to have a few meat eaters here in the congregation. Uh, Attend one of our barbecues, and you will know that beyond all shadow of doubt. There is nothing left on the bone when Northside does a barbecue. We like our meat. And before refrigeration, uh, meat would not happen to last long, especially in a place uh, like the Holy Lands. There's sun There's atmosphere, there's air. And as as soon as you expose meat to the environment, corruption and decay begin to set in unless you have preserved it with salt. And so when he says we are the salt of the earth, we are to have a preserving influence on the culture. And we do that, don't we? We take stands for specific issues related to what we believe the Bible teaches about marriage. Now, I'm not angry about it, but our culture has changed the definition. We we need to love what God says we are to love and um, to have a biblical definition that marriage is one man and one woman for life. 
is not a popular position, is it? With astonishing rapidity, our culture has completely abandoned uh, the principles that have made it strong. The foundation of the family that, um, in God's mind, is important. And we fight not because we're old fogies who want to hold on to old standards, but because we believe that the timeless Word of God says this is the way it's supposed to be. We seek to have a preserving impact on society to combat the corruption that we see in our morals, to delay the decay that we see in our values. But we're told to be light as well, and we see that light specifically reveals. When Jesus talks about us being light, He's talking about uh, revealing specifically two things, exposing error and teaching truth. That's what light does. That's how light functions. It allows you to see things that you perhaps can't see because it's too dark, and it lets you see that there are some things that are wrong and there are some things that are right. Beyond what they do, how do they work? These two Uh, metaphors that God uses of salt and light. Well, salt works differently than light does. Salt works silently, it works indirectly, and it works within. It is applied to the meat, and it doesn't say, all right, I'm the salt, and I'm doing my work now. I'm going to save this meat so you can eat it in two months. It just does its work in a way that we don't even really understand. It works indirectly, and it works within, uh, within... All the layers of the meat. But light, when Jesus talks about us being light and having a revealing and teaching function, this is something that is verbal, that is open, it is is exposed to the light and works without. In some ways, I think one of the ways that we could say it when we talk about salt, salt is our lifestyle, or what sometimes we call as Christians our walk. Do you walk in a salty way? Are you living differently? And when we talk about light, this is your testimony. It's your talk. And so the question for the Christian who seeks to be faithful is, are you living in a salty manner, and are you talking in a light-revealing manner? Are your walk and your talk consistent? And I think it's important here for us to say that when we talk about our testimony, our testimony is not our lifestyle. Because you know what? You could be living the way that you are for a variety of motives. But when you speak as to why you're different, you remove all the options and you say, I'm living this way because I am a Christian. Because I want to give allegiance to Christ and to His Word. As salt, we are to be the moral disinfectant in a world that has ever-changing, very low, or perhaps no standards. Our duty, in one sense, is to sting the conscience of the world with our purity. When your friends at work, when your neighbors at the YMCA, the person on the treadmill next to you, look at you, is there perhaps just a small sting of purity as you walk for Christ? Our stance on moral issues really should make people just a tad bit uncomfortable. We should live in such a way that we're salty. When we think about being light, one of the things that's important to recognize is we're not the light. There's one light, and it's Jesus. He says he himself is the light of the world. But you know what he does for people who believe in him? The Bible says in Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus, by our faith in him, transfers us from the domain of darkness 
into the what? The kingdom of his light. And then he goes on to tell us in Ephesians 5, because we've been bought by the blood of Christ, we are to walk as children of light and not engage in deeds of darkness. This light metaphor runs all throughout Scripture. And so we're not the light, Jesus is the light. But just as the moon reflects the light from the sun, that's how we cast our light. We don't have the light in us, we reflect Christ to our world around us. We might be the bulb, but Jesus is the electricity. We are to reveal, we are to show, we are to teach why we're different. We are to function in such a way. If our living is to be such a way that we sting the conscience, our teaching, our words, our verbal testimony is to kind of be like um, the proverbial light bulb turning on for somebody. We use that kind of in everyday common language. Hey, the light bulb came on. They're not making a comment about their home fixtures. They're saying, I get it now. I didn't get it here. And then the light bulb went on, and I get it now. Listen, isn't marriage a man-made idea? Can't we do with it what we want? And then through our testimony, why we believe what we believe, they go, so you don't think marriage is a man-made thing. This is a God thing. It goes back to, I get it now. We are to have that kind of teaching and revealing function in how we are the light. Kind of complementary to that. (laughs) When you say that someone is in the dark, that is not a compliment. Wives, you're with your lady friends, and you're talking about your anniversary. And what your husband did or did not do. And you make the comment that, well, because you're Christian, you say, bless his heart first. (laughs) And then you say, he's just kind of in the dark. He doesn't know. I think one of the things that's important for us is, especially when we talk about cultural issues, guys, listen. Perhaps the majority of the world disagrees with where we stand on moral issues. That is not an excuse for us to be hateful or to use uh, methods that don't exalt Christ. We are to be kind and we're to be gracious. And as Americans, we are to uh, bleed for the right for people to be wrong. We believe in that, don't we? People are entitled to their opinion. And so because someone disagrees with us doesn't give us the opportunity to be unchristian in how we respond. Okay, it's uh, important that we uh, be uh, light. But it's important for us to remember that when someone is, so to speak, in the dark, what can they not do? They can't see. They can't see. You would never stub your toe if the light was on, when you can see clearly. So friends, remember this. People who don't believe the way that we believe are not our enemy. They are indeed victims of the enemy. It says that the devil blinds their minds so that they can't see. So as we engage in civil discourse, friends, let's remember that, that we're talking to people that uh, by choice or by uh, satanic influence have darkened their mind. They can't understand. It's not been revealed to them. And our job is to be light And to be light, not just in what we say, but in how we say that. And so we see these two very important 
um, pictures that Jesus presents for us on how we're to live for him. The blessed ones are not just to kind of huddle up and be blessed in their little small group, but they're to be blessed in such a way that they're a blessing to the entire world by being salt and being light, by living distinctly and speaking the truth about why we live the way that we do. That's our charge as Christians. That's what we're supposed to do. And so I think there are a couple specific applications to how we live out this whole salt and light uh, dynamic. And there are, uh, firstly, two warnings hidden in Jesus' words. Uh, He doesn't say, hey, here's a warning coming up, but he gives two very subtle warnings. And he tells us this, heed the warning about worthlessness and work. Heed the warning. Pay attention to the warning about worthlessness and the warning about work. The warning about worthlessness is this. Salt that doesn't preserve is good for nothing. Salt that doesn't work. Light that is hidden under a basket. What benefit is there? What happens when you think you've got pure salt and you cure your meat and you come home from work the next day and you wonder what has died in your house? That investment, that side of beef that you thought was going to feed your family for a while is now rotten because the salt that you had that you thought was going to do its work proved to be worthless. And now you're imperiled. You're in trouble. Light that is hidden under a basket. What sense does that make? It's not good for anything. And so we're warned about this very issue of living the Beatitudes privately instead of publicly. To not be salt in the midst of corruption and decay is not worth it. We're to go to places where it's hard. If I, um, if I took my flashlight... Uh, number one, I wouldn't do it to you because it's like 800 lumens. It's, it's, it's a bright thing. Uh, wouldn't really make a difference in this room, would it? Why? Because there's light here. You know what has to happen for light to work? it has got to be some measure of darkness. And that's where the warning about our work comes in. You see, for salt and light to work... They must be in proximity to the very thing that they're fighting against. To have a small group where you rail on, pick your moral issue. And to sit downstairs in the basement and in your Sunday school class, talk about everything that's wrong with America. What good does that do? How have we helped one soul to understand why it's important to live for God? If anything, I say this with as much grace as I can muster, sometimes we just sound like a bunch of jerks. Curmudgeons. Salt has to be on meat. Somebody's got to get their hands dirty. You've got to work it in. You've got to make sure every part of that meat is covered so that there's no room for decay to come in on the backside. Well, I just got what I could see. Light has to shine in darkness. It penetrates it. Light shines brightest where the darkness is most fierce. 
And so the warning about our work is that we are to run to the areas that, need, that have need, not run away from them. To not be the guy that says, I don't drink or smoke or cuss or chew or run around with girls who do. But to find those people and befriend them for the purpose of being salt in life in their life. And see, we have created this whole entire subculture of Christians where um, if you like the Beatles, you'll love, insert the name of a Christian band. You know, there's even Christian fragrances out there. If you like Brute, you'll love Fruit of the Spirit, you know, coming soon to a store near you. We have to copy everything that the world says. And the truth is, we don't, we don't need Christian movie theaters and we don't need Christian restaurants. We don't need... We're called to be in the culture being salt and light. Not having holy huddles where we're really pleased to kind of be by ourselves, but we're not doing anything related to what God has asked us to do in the world. So we're warned about a very real danger of worthlessness. If our morals are not challenging the prevailing culture, are we really living differently? When our speech is no different than the man who works right next to us, Have we crossed the line into worthlessness, into salt that deserves to be trampled underfoot, into light that is hidden? It's a serious warning. And the second application is this. Shine not for yourself, but for Him. Sometimes Christians are really proud of their moral report card. I've never had a drink of alcohol. I've never used a tobacco product. I've never looked at anything that I shouldn't look at. I've never had a thought that I shouldn't have thought. I've never said a word that I never should have said. What are you doing? You're bragging. Like, you're capable of doing that on your own anyways? If you are, congratulations, you're the first person Jesus didn't have to die for. Don't make this about you. When when he talks about being a light of the world, he is not saying, get that big powerful flashlight and get right up in somebody's face and do an annoying SOS sign. I'm showing you my light, aren't you? Aren't you blessed? Congratulations, see my light. It's not about you. It says you are to shine your good works. Your good works, you do it. But why do you do it? That they might see your Father who is in heaven. And good grief, there's a lot of us would need to be in a clinic for broken arms because we try to pat ourselves on the back for all the good stuff that we do. It says don't make this about your moral report card. Shine your light for him. Because ultimately, any good that you do, you know where that comes from? Do you know where that comes from? Any good that you do comes down as a gift from the Father who gives every good thing that we have. Any redeeming quality that you have, any grace that is present in your life is not your own. It has been given you by God. This is a challenge, not just for you, it's a challenge for preachers too. There is a temptation, perhaps even on a Sunday morning when we gather together, to say things that are perceived as witty. Or, wow, isn't that cool? 
the, every point in his outline started with the same letter. <laughs> Friends, you don't want people to see you. You want people to see and hear the voice of God through you. If I could be a better preacher and people never remember my name, that would be a goal worth shooting for. To not make it about ourselves. So how do we be salt and light? To use another word picture, Jesus explains that. He says, you bear fruit. Salt, light, equals fruit. And as a matter of fact, as we continue through the Sermon on the Mount, from chapter 5, verse 17, through chapter 7, verse 12, he talks about, how does a Christian relate to others? Well, we don't murder. And not only that, we don't hate people. Because hate is murder in your heart. We don't commit adultery. As a matter of fact, we don't even look upon a woman lustfully. We don't exhibit vengeance. We trust it to God. We relate to others in a different way. We relate to God in a different way. We give to the poor. We don't pray uh, making big, long, flowery statements so people think we're spiritual. We, We don't pray on the street corners so everyone can see how spiritual we are. We go to God in our prayer closet and we plead with Him to work in our lives. We fast and don't get all gaunt in the face So the people go, wow, how spiritual you must be. Are you fasting? Well, yes, I am. Third time this week. No, we we examine ourselves to really be right before God. And I think when we talk about salt and light, the word salt is not used very often in the Bible. Uh, Not in the New Testament, at least. And so I think this passage, Colossians 4, 6, is wonderful. Listen to it in light of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. Colossians 4, 6 says, Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you are to respond to each person. It says that the way that we speak, there should be salt in our words. Our, our peas can be kind of bland. And they're to be zested with a little bit of salt. And that's how our speech is supposed to be. And it says, you're supposed to be seasoned with salt so you know how to deal with different people. You know, there are some people it is easier for you to bless. And there are some people that are a blessing to you. Do you have a friend like that? That, man, you get off the phone with them, you're just encouraged. You go, man, I need to talk to them every day. Because I'm, I just feel like a, I'm a better person when I be. But there's also people that, you know what? It's harder for you to bless. And they may never bless you. Well, they may blast you, but they may never bless you. And it says, make your speech seasoned with salt so that you know how to speak to every individual you meet. And then Paul clarifies this in Ephesians 4.29. When we talk about our speech being seasoned with salt, Paul says this, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good, for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Friends, I said this earlier, but you must always tell people your motive for why you live because they might think the reason that you're different is because you're a vegetarian. True to life story. 
had a sweet uh, uh, lady that I worked with in our student ministry who was just, because I knew her, she just was godly. But she was timid and kind of shy, and so she just decided she was going to live out her Christian life. She was going to be salt, but she didn't want to be light. She didn't want to, she didn't want to teach. She just wanted to live it out. And when she was graduating, she had this burning passion to, to make sure that she was telling her sweet mates about who Jesus is. And when she wanted to tell them, they said, Thank you so much for explaining why you were different. We thought you just had a, a special diet. Maybe you were a vegan. Maybe you were a vegetarian. That's what made you different. And so she had done her darndest to live clearly for Christ. And apart from speaking what made her different, they assumed that her difference was something not even related to who Jesus was. You have to reveal your motives. And then third and finally, an application for us is this. Notice our sphere of influence. It is the world. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And there's a temptation because we live in a hostile environment to seem like our lives are so small and insignificant and perhaps worthless in the world's economy. Big is good. Small, well, maybe you get there someday. We seem small. But notice that our value is not in our cost, it's in our function. You don't need a lot of salt to, to, to flavor a big meal. You don't need a lot of salt to have a wide influence. And that's what he says. He says, listen, there may be a blessed few of you who really truly live for me like these blessed ones in the Beatitudes. But these blessed ones will have an impact not just on their county, but on the entire world. They will season it all. They will light it all up. And here in Jesus' very first sermon, he is underlining the Great Commission even before he ever says it. You see, Jesus doesn't get up next week on Easter and go, hey, the Great Commission sounds like a good idea. Let me, let me make that my last words to my disciples. No, the Great Commission is not an isolated statement. It is a consistent trajectory from Abraham to Christ to the future. And he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. We are not called to withdraw. We're called to engage. We're not called to control. We're called to influence. We are not called to accommodate, but called to permeate. And what a lamp is to a house, a believer is to be to the world. We do well this morning to remember that our radiance And our zest comes from one place, and that is our relationship with the Lord. And so this morning, if you need to change bulbs, you need to refill your shaker, the good news for you is that if you will come to Christ, He will renew you. He'll help you shine brighter. He'll help you Uh, enjoy the opportunity to be zesty in a culture that doesn't even like you and to be joyful about it and say, I know you're going to throw rocks at me, but this is what I believe and this is who I'm going to serve. Won't you come to Christ and admit where you failed and ask him for your good and his glory to make you salt and light?
Dwight Eisenhower once said that a people that values its privileges above its principles soon finds that it loses both. We have tremendous privileges that we earn as Christians, that we are given as Christians by faith in Christ. Let's not value our privileges above our principle to shine and taste savory for Christ. Pray with me, please. God, I pray that as we have the opportunity to respond to you right now, the Lord, whether it's someone that walks the aisle and says, God, help me, or whether we, in our hearts where we're sitting, kneel in our hearts and say, God, help me, that you will help us to be your witnesses. Help us to never divorce our privileges from our principles, our blessings from our responsibilities, but help us indeed to be salt and light in a world that doesn't even want us. They don't want to taste us. They don't want to see us. We're a general embarrassment. But God, with joy and with faithfulness, help us to shine for you. God, if this message falls upon ears that just doesn't understand this, I pray that on this Palm Sunday that we understand it's not coming together into a building for this hour that makes us distinct, but it is living out the life that Christ has died to give us that makes us different. If there's one today that needs to understand what it means to live for Jesus, what it means to have their sins forgiven, to be in a right relationship with you, I pray that you would encourage them to come. It's in your name that we pray.